I was out in the parking lot before I came up here, and the guys in the parking lot says, man, there's a lot of cars here today. And then the other person said, they probably thought you were still on vacation. <laughs> so that's real encouraging. Um, we did a staycation. I hope you enjoyed Sammy, very passionate man, likes to yell at people. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, the old book, the last book of the Old Testament. And as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along, and there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. But if there isn't, if you'll raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. Does anybody need a Bible? Up here. We've got three of them, Dan, since you're going back there and grabbing them. Open it to Malachi chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 today. Situation that was going on some 400 years before the arrival of the Lord that parallels what's happening today. So many things in the Old Testament parallel what is going on today. Why? Because the Old Testament obviously was just before the first coming of Christ truly seems like we're living in the times just before the second coming of Christ. So we just need to consider these things. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Malachi chapter 1, I'll be starting at verse 1. The prophet writes, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will throw down. They, may be called, uh, they shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever." Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Father, once again, we understand that, Lord, and that, Father, you are magnified in this place this morning. You are magnified through our lives. And so, Father, I pray that we would look not only at the charges and the things that you had to say, but also the attitude of the people. And pray, Father, that we would truly be a people who are humble before our Lord, understanding, God, all that you have done for us and continue to do. And so, Lord, I just pray as you desire to use us that we would be a people who are prepared and are ready for that service. And so, Lord, minister to us here in this place this morning that you'd be glorified through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So, as I said, Malachi's time, a time parallel to our own. Religion is no longer about a relationship, but it has become a pointless practice. A pointless practice that even the religious leaders of that day, they put no seriousness upon it, and if they don't, why would the people? And again, we can find ourselves in the same circumstances. Without the knowledge of God's presence and a personal relationship, there's going to be emptiness in His worship. There's going to be the singing of songs, to put it into our ballpark here, but really without the giving of a heart. There's no passion, maybe an excitement about the entertainment value, but but there's no desire for the absolute worship value of it. Back then, worshiping of God was presenting the sacrifice, and they were presenting, as we will see, the lame and the blind. They were given that which was the leftover to the Lord. And we need to examine ourselves. When it comes to be giving or what we give to the Lord, and I'm not talking about what we put in the sock that we pass around or the agape box, but that needs to be considered as well. But how much more so when we're just worshiping or singing out? Are you truly doing so with your heart? Are you understanding that as we are in the house of God, we're before the presence of God? You could say, well, I'm before the presence of God all the time. That's true, but you're to have a higher awareness of the presence of God when we are in the house of God amongst God's people. And as we are amongst God's people and we're worshiping the Lord, there has to be that undivided attention in the reality of what God has done for us that our worship would be an expression of who God is of who God is, and again, of what God has done. And so, the problem back in the day, in Malachi's day, things were rotting, spiritually speaking, and the problem is they're rotting from the top down. Now, as I've said so many times, if you're a born-again believer here this morning, you're a leader. 
Somebody looks to you as an example of who a Christian is. You have even a greater responsibility if you have children. Because the worst thing, the absolute worst thing that you can do is to come in here and act so spiritual and go home and act like a heathen. And so as we are all called to this great ministry of leadership, we have to consider ourselves. Because again, in Malachi's day, things were rotting and they were rotting from the top down. Now, we see the stories today in the newspaper. We see the sexual abuse that exists, even in that which is referred to as the church. Pastors preaching good ideas rather than God's truth. We see denominations appointing people and exalting people as saints above the common people and all of that. We've got to stay rooted and grounded in God's Word. And when the leadership is no longer rooted and grounded in God's Word, then that leadership needs to be replaced. And again, as this is all about the Lord and what the Lord wants to do, and as God has told us what He wants to do and what He expects of us, we need to submit ourselves in that. And as we submit ourselves to that, then that's one of the greatest expression of leadership that we can possibly give. The commentary, well actually it was a pastor, James Montgomery Boyce said, Malachi describes that modern attitude of mind that considers man superior to God and which has the audacity to attempt to bring God down to earth and measure Him by the yardstick of human mortality. If Jesus is your Lord, you need to continue to conduct your life as Jesus is your Lord. But you also have to consider in the midst of that, and we're going to look at some details today, are you attempting to drag Him down and you become His Lord? How can you become the Lord of the Lord? By giving Him direction by telling Him what you expect, by defining your situations and circumstances to Him. Who are we to say whatever it is that we are struggling in our lives ought not to happen? Who are we to say what we should be gifted to do or enabled to do? Or or again, you can look at across the whole spectrum of our lives and look at the details of our lives and how many times have you used prayer as an opportunity to give the Lord instruction? When you do that, you put yourself in the place of being Lord over the Lord. See, a servant just presents himself before the Lord and says, Yes, Master, what do you expect of me today? And responds in absolute obedience. Are we responding in absolute obedience? Are you being convicted by a Bible study? Regardless if it's by yourself or here in the sanctuary. And are you submitting yourself to that conviction that exists in your life based upon God's Word? Because that's what was going on in Malachi, and they were kicking against the goads. Again, verse 1, or actually in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, and look at the audacity of the people. Yet you'd say, in what way have you loved us? Oh yeah? How have you loved us? Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Oh yeah, well, how have we despised you? And so God is making these charges against these people, and they're countering the charges of God. Do you want to get the most out of any Bible study that you ever partake in? Again, from your personal reading on the radio, in church, or whatever. Submit yourself to the correction and the direction of the Lord. There's a great wrong that I see in Christianity. My wife and I, if there's one thing I learned on my vacation, it was this. Just in the discussions that my wife had, and and, and just kind of a fresh perspective. We can so easily be correctors. Does anybody here like to be corrected? Now, I'm not talking about necessarily from the Lord, but that's going to be included in it. I don't like to be corrected. But have we been called to be correctors? And you can find Scripture that, yeah, it says to correct here and there and whatnot, but really, it's the attitude in which we correct. What I see overwhelmingly in the Scriptures, we are to be encouragers. And correction needs to come about through encouragement. Now, sometimes in encouragement, it's going to be saying or doing the hard things. But are we saying these things with the spirit of superiority or with the spirit of seeing somebody growing stronger and growing closer to the Lord? A lot of times the correction we give is for the purpose of self-exaltation. And again, that's never going to achieve its purpose. There's only one who is to be exalted. And what do we do? We bring people closer to the one 
who is to be exalted by exhorting them, lifting them up. That's what true Christianity is all about. Receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, submitting your life to Him, having repented of your sins and this great work that God is doing, but then seeing other people walking closer to Christ because of our existence, our presence within their lives. Look at your Christian life. Who's walking closer with Jesus because you're a born-again believer? Who's walking closer to Christ? Well, I've got these people who, who hate me, and we just studied in 2 Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But is your persecution coming about because of your own arrogance? Your own, and I want you to consider your own spiritual arrogance. Because I can look at places in my life that I've looked down my nose at somebody or I've acted superior to somebody. Maybe even for a good reason, but did it the wrong way. Not to be a corrector. I'm called to be a, an encourager. And we all are. And just think what would happen if we had a church that was full of correctors, we'd hate each other's guts. What happens if we would have a church that was filled with encouragers? If we had a church that was filled with encouragers, we'd be constantly growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and it would be displayed through our attitudes and through our actions. We would be all that God would have us be. Not that we're not, and you know, I'm not here berating the church. I'm correcting, no, I'm... I'm Encourage just we can always do better. And we have to, you know, and again, this is something that the Lord showed me, at least the different perspective that the Lord showed me. And how we are to conduct ourselves. Are we conducting ourselves properly, especially as again, we are the leaders? And so the way I look at it, and I see the, the attitude that is here as the Lord brings a charge, and they basically say, oh yeah, because they say it as I read in verses 1, verse 6, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 8, and verse 13. And I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, I wouldn't allow my kids to talk to me that way, or at least I wouldn't have as they were growing up. And if I wouldn't allow my kids to talk to me in such a way, would I talk to God in that same way? Would I talk to my Father in heaven in that same way? And so the book of Malachi needs to be a conviction to us all. A conviction to us all where we have taken God for granted. Where we have fallen into religious routine. Where we become doing the same thing in the same place. And the only reason I'm at church today, because it's 1050 on a Sunday, and that's where I always am at on the 1050 on Sunday but that I would truly understand the necessity of my heart in this relationship with God. Malachi, as Malachi is writing this, it's about 40 years after the prophet Zechariah's day, which was the book before Malachi, and it's about 400 plus years before the first coming of Christ. Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah in that we see the temple is back in existence. There is self-civil rule in place. And Malachi addresses a lot of the same issues that Nehemiah does. And what is happening here in this last of the Old Testament book is setting the foundations for what we see in the Gospels when Christ came. The, the state of the priesthood and the religious system is going to be that which Christ comes up against when he does come. Again, Jesus had some pretty strong words, but he didn't have them against the prostitute didn't have them against the tax collector, didn't have them against the sinner so, so much, had them against the self-righteous. The self-righteous, those who thought that they were right before God because of who they were or what they were able to do. And so what we see in Malachi is the beginning of the attitude of the religious leaders that when Christ came would bring pronunciations, pronunciations, pronouncements of woes into their lives. We see this in Matthew chapter 23, in verse 13, Jesus said, But woe to you. Now, woe is a warning of judgment that is to come. If somebody was on their deathbed and, and they had refused Christ, you would say, Woe to you. If you die in your sins, you're going to perish forever. 
And so this wasn't just Jesus berating people. This is Jesus trying to shock people into opening their eyes and recognizing that they're very far from God. And he's wanting them to take stock of themselves. And again, in verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves. You're not right with God. And if you're not right with God, how are you going to bring anybody else into God's kingdom? Anybody who's a parent here, anybody, again, who has anybody that looks to you as an example of a Christian, have you truly entered in with all of your heart to your Christian belief? Are you still there on the peripheral? Did you give your heart to Jesus or invite Jesus into your heart one day and then walk away? I mean, what does it mean to invite Jesus? And I heard somebody use that term. I invited the Lord into my heart. Now again, I don't want to get caught up in terminology, but you are called to submit yourself to the Lord, to subject your heart before the Lord, because it's only then that as you subject yourself or submit yourself before the Lord or surrender yourself before the Lord, that you're open to the leading of the Lord. So many times when we say, I brought Jesus in, it's like I gave Christ the privilege of coming into my life. And again, just something I want to see from the proper perspective. My salvation was a surrendering of myself to dying to the old man, but becoming alive to the new man based upon what Christ has done and did do on that day of my salvation. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. You're doing all the religious stuff, but you're doing it for self-gain. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, that would be a Jewish convert, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. You're you're duplicating yourselves. But the problem is, you're not right with God. If I'm not right with God, how can I bring somebody to Christ? I'm probably going to make people more like me, and if I'm not right with God, why would I want to make somebody else not right with God? or at least to think that they're right with God when they're not right with God. Verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated to perform it. And the idea is is that their priority was higher in the riches and what they were able to bring in than this house of God. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish. You look really holy on the outside, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgences. Verse 27 basically says the same thing when he calls them whitewashed tombs. They look clean on the outside, but inside are unclean. Verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adore the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the day of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Now, they killed the prophets back in the day, and what were they doing in that same day? Well, what was a prophet? A prophet is one who is to speak God's word. And what are they doing? They're coming contrary to the word of God. And it's why we open up the Bible every time we gather together in the small groups. My wife just said, going through the book of James, we're getting into the Word of God. Part of the reason, I mean, there's so many reasons, obviously, but Jesus came up against those who hindered the Word of God. Hindered the Word of God in their lives, hindered the Word of God in the lives of others. Now, when we consider the epistles, Malachi is an Old Testament book. He's a minor prophet. He's not one of the epistles. The epistles are the letters that aren't the gospels that we see in the New Testament. But when we consider the epistles, a lot can be gained from asking three questions. Three questions that we will apply to this book of Malachi. First question would always be, who is the author? Well, this is obviously easily answered in that the author is in the very first verse, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. What does the name Malachi mean? The name Malachi means Lord's messenger. And so God's got a message. He's got a message for his people. Back then, when he had a message for his people, he would send the prophet. Now, they still had the word of God. They had the first five books that you have sitting on your lap even right now. And all of the law is spelled out in that. But when man would go contrary to that, God would raise his voice, if you will, by sending the prophet. And that's what he's doing with Malachi. Malachi is God's word, God's prophet to these people. 
couple of things when considering that. First, the spoken word is how God decided to communicate with mankind. It's how he, he didn't just implant these things in your heart. God has spoken these things to all of mankind. It's that all the prophet, prophecies are fulfilled in the word of God. Now think of what that means. All of the prophecies, all of those words, Old Testament, all that the prophets have given, they've all funneled to Jesus Christ. And what is Jesus Christ called? He's called in John chapter 1, the Word. Why is he called the Word? I mean, it's singular because all of those words that were spoken, all of those prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, he's referred to as the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. And the idea is Jesus is the first and the last word and everything in between. And so that would be the idea. As John is writing his gospel, he's writing it to the Jewish mind. He's proving that Jesus Christ is God and he presents him as the word. If you look at John chapter 1, we're not going to get into this, but if you look at John chapter 1 and commit and compare it, to Genesis chapter 1, you'll see the point that John is trying to make. Now, the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers, to those who had gone before, by the prophets, has in these last days, in these current days, spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you see the priority of the word, of the spoken word? I was talking to some friends last night about this. It used to be, before we had video games, before we had the internet, before we had TV, before we had radio, if you were going to do something on a Friday night, you would go and attend a debate somewhere. That was entertainment. But back then, a debate was really a debate. It wasn't arguing and berating and all the stuff that we hear today. Or you would go listen to an orator. An orator would be somebody that would, you know, you'd sit in a hall such as like this, and he would... He would give an oration, a speech about something, whatever it might be. That's what people did for entertainment. And and it would spark their minds, and it would spark their thoughts. That was the intent of the university, university, a compound word where the versity of all that goes on is unified under the Word of God. And people would sit in the hall, and what would they learn to do? Well, they would learn the discipline of what they were being taught, but ultimately they were learning to think. And as we learned to think, and it was all under, it was all being condensed under God and who God is, then we would have a society that would be blessed of God. Children right now, we do the Answers in Genesis curriculum for our children's ministry, and they're being taught the Word of God, but they're being prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within them. Now, in those handouts that your kids bring home, Don't just stick them on the refrigerator. Stick them on the refrigerator, but turn it over because there's family discussion on the back that you would prepare your children, that they wouldn't just be, well, go to church and learn what they have to say and then go to school and learn what they have to say. And then what do you have? You have a child as these two are contradictory to one another that is just flat out confused. If you take that time with your your children, to go home and to look at the things that they're learning here at church. That's the reason for the handout. And again, on the back of the handout, it has parental, parental discussion topics. Take those home and talk to them about it. Find out what they're learning in school and show them how the scriptures fulfill those things. Secondly, today the Lord continues to communicate through his word. It was his word into my mouth, that flows into my mouth, into the life of somebody else. It's the faith, the faith, the faith, the just living by faith. As we spread the word of God, it continues to touch hearts to such a degree that the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says, how will they know without a preacher? 
And the idea is, in that question that was asked, is they're not going to know without a preacher. Now, he didn't say pastor, he said preacher, and we're all called to be preachers. Remember we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we are to do the work of an evangelism, regardless of what it is that you've been called to do, however it is that you've been gifted to do what you've been called to do, do the work of an evangelist. The end result would be the proclamation of the Word of God. And so, it's... It won't go without a preacher. If our mouths would stay silent, now I know God could use so many other ways, but the means by which He has chosen to use and to convey the gospel is by these mouths that we have and these voices that He blessed us with. And now that would make sense if you really think about it, because what is even this country of free speech trying to do? They're trying to stop the words. The word going through our mouths. There's a movement to try and not stop it, but hinder it anyway. And we need to understand, we need to recognize where this point exists in the battlefield where we fight today. Battlefield of free speech whittles down to the giving of God's Word. I don't care about everybody else who will spew their ideas because the Word of God, truth, will always overcome a lie. And so I have to understand that I need to be faithful in these things. A big part of our Christian life is simply being a messenger of God. Now, just like Zechariah, because Zechariah said it the same way, this message is referred to as a burden. Look at this burden as a word given by God that is very heavy upon this prophet's heart. Have you ever felt conviction because you knew that God was telling me to, to share the gospel with that person? I just knew God was telling me to share the gospel with that person, and I didn't. And you just feel like you had an opportunity, or you feel like that's a burden. God's placed that burden upon you, and the only way that you can properly be relieved of that is to truly just let it out to let it out and to be obedient to God. And that's what this prophet is saying. You know, I'm looking at the religious landscape of our society today, and this is a burden that is upon me, that God has placed upon me. My father, I got the phone call that he was going to die. And my dad, at that point, did not know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. I had shared with him in the past And he said he made him feel uncomfortable and he didn't want me doing that to him anymore. And I live in Ontario and my father lived in Bray at the time. He was at his house. He was dying of cancer. My brother called me and told me, if you want to see dad alive one more time, you need to come right now. On the way over there, I had a heavy burden upon me. He told me not to share with him anymore, but that burden was so heavy. I sat down next to him and I shared with him one last time and he submitted himself to the word of God. It's a burden. And we need to be, have our senses sharpened to that burden because we can so easily have our senses seared to that burden where we don't recognize it anymore. But we need to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit in that recognize the burden and know the only way that you're ever going to be relieved of that burden is to speak the words that God has impressed upon your heart to do so. So, first, who is the author? Well, the author is this messenger of God. Now, who is the audience? Again, verse 1 gives us the answer. It says, to Israel, to the, bur- um, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. And you can shut your Bible and go home right now and say, I'm not of Israel. But you've got to keep this in mind. As far as our application, when you hear Israel, don't think the Jews but do consider those defined by the word Israel, which means governed by God. Are you governed by God? Or at least do you know that you're supposed to be governed by God? This is a message that is given, a message of God that is given to the people who are governed by God. The Bible is breathed by the the Word of God. This is the Word of God. It's breathed by the mouth of God and is profitable for so much in our lives. But what was Paul referring to when he said that? Again, we saw it in 2 Timothy. He's referring to the Old Testament because that was his Bible of the day. Now, it is inclusive of the New Testament, but the Old Testament, we have to make it real in our lives. Now, the promises to Israel aren't necessarily to the church, but at least the warnings that God gives, I need to receive and I need to be mindful as well. 
And so if I truly consider myself to be governed by God or maybe consider that Jesus Christ is my Lord, I need to be open to this message. And so in this book, God's got a message to me as the pastor of this church, but also as the husband of Terry and the father of my kids and the grandfather of my grandchildren. So there's something here that the church, that both the church and Israel, all who are governed by God, they need to hear. So the author, God's messenger. The audience, those who are governed by God. And then the agenda. Well, the agenda is very, very important. Turn over to chapter 3, same book. Chapter 3, verse 7. This is the key verse of Malachi. It says, Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. And then the Lord says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But then again, they stand up against them. But you said, In what way shall we return? The word return is really an amazing inclusion in what God says and does. When he says return, for clarity, you could write next to that, start over. God is the God of new beginnings. Now, in the day that I was saved, I started over. I was a new creation in Christ. But then there were times when I kind of wandered away in disobedience and whatever it might be, and I know I needed to start over. I needed to get back where I needed to be and start afresh. It's the idea of repentance at salvation and repentance every other day. The idea is of forsaking my sin and coming before a holy God and saying, here I am, Lord, use me even one more time. And God is saying here, He's saying to this disobedient people, because remember what they did. They violated the law. And I don't know if you recall, if you've read the first five books of the Bible, there was a penalty for the violation of the law of God. And they were worthy of judgment, just as truly as you were worthy of judgment before you were saved. But God, who is rich in His grace and mercy, didn't bring judgment. And God says, start over with me, and it's an amazing thing. I'll start over with you. If you start over with God, God will start over with you. That's one of the most powerful statements in the Bible. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, Maybe you've come to Christ. Maybe you're walking strongly with Christ, but walked away, with the Lord, walked away from the Lord. Or maybe you've even done worse than just walked. Maybe you've stomped all over the Lord. And God still says, if you start over with me, I'll start over with you. And that means that my relationship in the Lord can be renewed even daily. When I've sinned, when I've fallen away, when I've just simply missed the mark, when you have those times when you, when you feel like you're just kind of separated from God, start over. What does that mean? Come to Christ. You don't have to, I mean, you come to Christ just not for salvation. I come to Christ because of salvation. I try to start over with God every day as I get into the Word every morning. I read through the one-year Bible. I've been reading through the one-year Bible pretty much every single day since 2001. Why? Because I need to start over every day. I need to be renewed every day. You should have a daily reading plan of some sort. And so here, even when we see these things that the Jews are involved in, the religious community is involved in, God still holds His hand out. He still holds. We were told in Isaiah many times that God's anger is not turned away, but still His hand is held out. His anger can be full force at His people, but never does it pale His grace being directed towards them that you can come to God. And as you come to God, you can be renewed even at that moment. And it's an amazing concept because I know for me, traditional religion always told me that God was mad. And if you really believe that God is mad at you, then you're going to be hiding in the bushes with Adam and Eve. You're going to have fig leaves stuck all over you. You're just going to look absolutely ridiculous trying to hide from God. And God's going to see it. He's going to say, where are you? Uh, I'm hiding from you. It was like my kids. They would be, we'd play hide and go seek. I'd find Sean in the corner and he'd have his hands over his face. What are you doing? I'm hiding. You're not a very good hider. Well, when it comes to God, we're not very good hiders as well. But you don't have to hide. 
because you know the graciousness of the Lord. You know the magnitude of His love. Don't hide. Just simply start over. And the way you start over is just simply repent. Repent. There's times when when we've gone way off in the wrong direction to such a degree that we just simply need to come back to that starting place. That was the beauty of the day of my salvation. Now, is the day of my salvation really the day of my salvation? That date, I think it was July 23rd, not really. I think I was saved before that, but that was just the day that it was validated or that was the day that I put a time stamp on it so I can know and look back and, and, and understand that it did occur, and when I need to go back, I'm able to go back. That, yes, I'm a born-again believer, I'm a child of God. You see, it was a supernatural act of God that brought me into the kingdom of heaven, and the only way that I can be taken out of the kingdom of heaven would be a supernatural act of God. Your salvation was an act of God, so to lose your salvation would have to be God undoing your salvation. Do you see anywhere in the Bible that God does that? I see nowhere in the Bible where God does that. And so God is constantly calling His children to come back to Him. Look at the, we're not going to get into it, but the parable of the prodigal son. I remember I was a children's minister at another church. We were at kids camp, and I'd never been to kids camp before, and I was told there was a lake, and I could take the kids to a lake. And so we walked about three or four miles, and we never found the lake. And it started getting kind of late, and so I had about 20 kids with me, and maybe a liter or two, and I go, we better get back. And so I led them back. Well, we came to a fork in the trail, and I took the wrong fork. I went off to the right when I should have gone to the left. It wasn't funny. You weren't there. Your kid wasn't there, Nora. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I realized we're at the wrong place. Now, I had a decision to make at that point. Should I continue to go the wrong way, or should I turn around and go the right way and get on the right path and go back? Well, I, I kind of thought it through. I considered going the wrong way for a period of time and getting loster. But I decided to turn around. I repented. I went back. I I had to humble myself. I've led you in the wrong direction. And we went back. We got on the right path. And guess what? We got back to safety. We got back to camp. And it needs to be the same thing in your Christian life. Are you on the wrong path? Are you going the wrong way? Repent. Stop and start going the right way. And if you're a born-again believer, just start over with Him. If you're not a born-again believer and you're going the wrong way, well, repent and then start with Him. And then you'll have that opportunity to start over when you mess up further on down the road. Because we all mess up. That's why God says, because He knows who we are, if you start over with me, I'll start over with you. James chapter 4, verse 8, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's understanding the nature of even a born-again believer that we need those times of returning to God. So why these words of warning? Well, because God loves you and sees you going down a wrong trail, and he's warning you so that you would come back. Again, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. I've loved you. Remember the the magnitude of love on the day that you got saved and how you experienced all that? For me, as I've said before, there was kind of an element of fear going into the unknown, but there was the knowledge that Christ was, was going down there with me, and I understood the love, understood the fear of the flesh, and all of these things, so many different emotions. But God was there every step of the way. Now they come up against God, and you have to understand this mindset. God says, and you probably should, now you'll all be able to relate to this as you go through some hard times. God says, in the midst of what's going on, I have loved you, says the Lord, And their response is, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? See, their problem is, they have taken governorship of their own lives over, so they don't recognize the hand of a loving God in their life. If you take control of your life, God is going to allow you, number one. And number two, you're not going to sense God's hand or God's presence within your life. How have you loved us? Well, what are some of the ways they could consider? Well, how have you loved us? You threw us into Babylonian captivity. How have you loved us? You only brought a few of us back. How have you loved us? We got this ghetto temple compared to what we used to have. How have you loved us? We just scratch out a meager existence right now. 
And you say, God, that you love us? Well, where is the love that you're talking about, Lord? Well, we're always of the mindset that, well, you could have done more, you could have given more, you could have helped more. Well, it's not about what's going on here. God's doing this work. And as He's doing a work in your lives, sometimes it's going to hurt. Now, when I go to the dentist, and I've been to the dentist a lot, Every time I go to the dentist, the dentist would say, I can't believe how soft your teeth is. I have more iron in my mouth than I have bone in my mouth. And they go in there, and so they're going to do whatever they do, and they give me a shot. I don't think anybody here likes getting a shot. And then you got the numb thing going on. <laughs> and then they drill your head. They, get this, they got this power drill that's going on in your mouth, smoke's coming out of your mouth, and you're concerned they're going to hit a nerve, and I'm going to jump through the ceiling and all of this, and you can so have the mindset, great, I get a, ca- a cavity, and the penalty for a cavity is torture. <laughs> and that's what they teach dentists in dental school. Do we have any dentists here? Yeah, you wouldn't raise your hand if you were. <laughs> so in America, if you get a cavity, they torture you for that. Well, no, no, no. It's just that the cure hurts. Same thing with surgery. Yeah, I, I had this appendicitis, and, well, they came, they, they cut you open? What kind of torture is that? Well, it did hurt. It was uncomfortable. It was a long process, but I turned out the better for it. And how many more times are we whining and complaining about getting the shot, the proverbial shot? or getting drilled, or getting cut, when God is doing a work in our lives for the purpose of correction, or restoration, or healing, or whatever it might be. See, the healing and the procedure for all of that, it hurts. But you endure the pain, you endure the hardship, and you learn a few things. Number one, I'm going to be the better off for it. Number two, I ought not to do that again. Stop drinking sodas, don't eat so much sugar, brush your teeth, floss, whatever it might be, so you don't have to get tortured anymore. But again, the dentist, well, really they have the mindset of you paying them a lot of money. But let's look at the best case scenario of a dentist. He does want to heal you. I, I, I pray that your dentist wants to do that. And how much more so are God? Your God wants to heal you. Your God wants to restore you. And he's willing to do the hard things. When he's in the midst of doing the hard things, be open to the hard things. Because if you're open to the hard things, then you're going to receive of them, and you'll be able to move on. But don't try to take governor of, governorship of your life from him. Because it's all you're going to do is to increase the pain and cause it to be even longer, a longer process in your life. And another thing is, don't get in the way of somebody else. And I'll just use this because this is the majority of how I see it. Moms, let your kids suffer. They've caused you to suffer a lot. Let them suffer. Now, it can be suffer under control. What I'm saying is, don't get in God's way. Because if you get in God's way, some of that is going to get on to you. Some of that suffering is going to get on to you. And then you're just going to extend what God wants to do. And so we've got to be of this mindset, this hardship that we can experience from time to time. It's a good thing. How do I know it's a good thing? Because it's from God. And all good things come from God. And so the hard things that are going on in my life, if I look at them in reality, they are good things. They're just really hard things. Verse 2, I have loved you, said the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Well, we know, scripturally speaking, God, it wasn't so much that he hated Esau. That's a strong word that doesn't mean the same thing in our language that it did in them. It just simply means, I have loved Jacob, and Esau I have loved less. Why has he loved him less? Because Jacob, as bad as Jacob was, ultimately Jacob came into a right relationship with God, submitted himself to the leading of the Lord. Esau had a hard heart and never did. Look at Israel today as an expression of the proof of what God has done. He's done some pretty hard things in Israel's day. Brought him under multiple captivities, 
completely dispersed them to the wind as a nation. Even today, there's a lot of hardship that goes on in Israel, but God's love is still upon them simply because of their existence. Esau, do you know an Edomite? Anybody know an Edomite? There's none that I know of. Matter of fact, even the country is very, I saw it from a distance, it's very desolate. It's just simply wilderness. They have tried to build there, but never really successful. Go ahead and turn over to Genesis chapter 32, and and we'll go ahead and close from there. Jacob. Jacob was known, just as you were known at one time in your life before Christ, as a heel catcher. Heel catcher means a deceiver. Jacob was always conniving and trying to work things out according to his own will and according to his own way. Chapter 32 is where we see how God arrested his heart. Now, Jacob, he's fleeing his father, Laban. His father, he's of the mindset, this guy gets a hold of me, he's going to kill me. They had a meeting there, they had an agreement, but there's no going back to him. Now, as he's going back into this old land, there's his brother Esau. Esau, the last time he saw Esau, he had threatened to kill him. And now Esau's got 400 guys with him, and he's riding hard to him. And so he's concerned. He's caught literally between a rock and a hard spot. In verse 7 it says, So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And so this is a real situation in his life. And so now he's acting according to his flesh how he has always acted before. It says he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. Well, who are the people who are with him? We're told earlier, Rachel and Leah. Those are his two wives and two wives with all of their kids. So what has he done? There's a river there. He's put all of Rachel and her kids over here. And then over on the other side, he's put Leah and all of her kids and all the flocks and all the stuff there. And what we're going to see is he goes on the other side of the river. And so his plan is he doesn't know what to do, so he's got one last thing. Okay, when Esau comes and he attacks, if he goes over to Leah, I'll go with Rachel and we'll run. Or if he attacks Rachel, I'll go with Leah and we'll run. If your plan in your Christian life is to run, it's a bad plan. It's a very bad bad plan. God's not going to allow it. Look over at verse 22. So he's on the other side of the the river. It says, And he arose that night and took his two wives and two female servants and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of the Jabbok. That's the river. Then he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. So he's left alone on the other side. And it says, now you should be able to relate to this when you're trying to to connive and you're trying to plan things out apart from God. It says, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the break of day. Now we know that this is the Lord. Have you wrestled with the Lord all night long? How many times have you done that? I've done that. We plan something out, some sin in your life, some direction God's given you that you're going contrary, and there's just that wrestling that's going on. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he had saw that he had not prevailed against him, that this wrestling's going on, he, that would be the man, it's the Lord, touched the socket of his hip, touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel or governed by God. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And you can look at that and say, how has he prevailed? God's just increased his misery. Well, from the outside, that's exactly what it looks like has happened. But God had blessed him. How did he bless him? He knocked his hip out of joint. And you think, how's that a blessing? That sounds like it hurts. Well, it probably did hurt. It probably hurt a whole lot. Matter of fact, from that time on, he walked with with a limp. But you know what he wasn't able to do from that time on? He wasn't able to run. He had to submit himself to God. And when he had submitted himself to God, what did God do? God had already gone before him and done a work in Esau's heart. So that when they finally did meet, Esau fell upon his neck and kissed him. And he he called him brother. 
And so you look at this impossible situation. You've been involved in what seems to be impossible situations before. I'm sure some of you tried to work them out. You probably wrestled with God all night. And you probably never really got the blessing because you refused the blessing. And how did that turn out for you? Probably not very well. Or maybe you just submitted yourself to God. Submitted yourself to God and it seemed impossible, maybe even seemed foolish. But you submitted yourself to God and you saw how the Lord was able to work everything out. It was hard because the knocking of a hip at a joint, it does hurt. But it's those things that hurt that really get our attention and really cause change to come about in our lives. What's the work that God's doing in your life? Just know this, he's going to be faithful to complete it. You're not going to be faithful to see it completed, but he's going to be faithful to complete it. And as he brings it to completion, you'll see that these things, these things were done of God. He's going to tell some hard things to the religious community through this prophet Malachi. It's going to be hurtful things, but it's all for the purpose of their healing. Did it happen? It doesn't look like it happened for 400 years. Matter of fact, he had to knock their hips out of joint, and that Greece was going to come in and going to conquer, and then Rome was going to come in and conquer. But what did it accumulate? It accumulated back then in the same thing that accumulates even today, Christ being glorified. Christ came into their lives and Christ was glorified even through their hardship. Father, I just pray that, Lord, you are glorified through our hardship, that you are glorified through our disobedience. And, Lord, may we always remember in the midst of that wrestling with you, Lord, the reason you wrestle, the reason you strive with man, so that we would start over. Because, God, the only reason that there is even wrestling that... that, that humble man can wrestle with mighty God is because you have the desire to start over with us. And so, Father, as this is all built upon your will, may we submit ourselves to your will. May we glorify your holy name in all that we do. And as we do that, Lord, I pray that people would look upon us. The people, the people that look to us as a leader, look to us as what an example of a Christian is to be, and that, Father, they would enter into the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, just bless us this day. We just thank you, Father, that you have given us this time in your word. I pray, Father, that we would truly grasp onto these things, that, Lord, we would not be correctors, but we would be encouragers going out and seeing, Father, the kingdom of heaven grow. Lord, we live in such evil times, but, Lord, it's you who prevails in the midst of evil. And because of that, we just praise you, Lord. I pray, Father, that even in this last worship song, that we would truly have a heart to worship you with all of our might, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? A couple of things. The baptism is on the 18th, which I believe is two weeks from today. Now, the baptism isn't just a baptism, it's also our birthday party, Calvary Chapel, Ontario's birthday party. Um, We've been in existence for 18 years. If you want to give a gift, show up. You'd be gift enough. Um, We're going to have a, it's not just a baptism, but it's also a kind of a church picnic thing. It'll be at the Bowley's house. We have maps over there at the information booth. Um, we're going to be supplying the main dish. We need people to bring side dishes and whatnot. And so if you can sign up for that, that would be appreciated. If you want to be baptized, we appreciate if you'd sign up for that as well. Uh, Men's retreat is in the first weekend of October. And then small groups are starting on the 13th. My wife spoke about the women's. The men's small groups are starting that same night, Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. And just so you know, guys, we also have a men's group that meets on Saturday. I think it's at 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock every Saturday. So if you want to be part of that, that's actually been ongoing, but you can plug into that as well. Tonight, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. We're chapter 61. There'll be a couple up here for prayer. I'll be in the back. God bless you guys.